Welcome to The Lisa Show. Think about the last time you worked on something with another person. You know, what was that group project like? You know, life itself is like a team project at some points in your life. You're going to have to work with at least one other person in order to accomplish a shared goal. Seeing life from that angle can put into perspective the importance of learning and mastering the art of teamwork. But it's not easy working with other people, and it's frustrating when your team members don't do their part. So what are the characteristics of a good teammate? Joining us today is Denise Dudley, professional trainer and author of Work It, here with us to discuss how teamwork really does make the dream work. Welcome, Denise. Glad to have you and glad to be with you today. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on your show. You bet. I think we throw along this this. You know, you got to be a team player, right? Whether we're talking about a family or at a work situation or whatever, be a team player. But when we say that, what is it that we really mean? Wow. So when we think about team player, and really I was thinking before I was going to talk to you today that teamwork and team playership really works the same way between families and groups at work because one way or another, what we're doing is we're trying to accomplish a goal. So I like to think about teamwork and being a team player with the end in mind, like what is our goal? So there are some times when teams come together for just one project, like we're going to put on the best school carnival ever for our kids, or we're going to get together as a team and be a committee and and work to change the policy on, on our city council, or there's like a permanent team, which would be your family. And and the, the goal isn't just a one-shot goal. It's an eternal goal of let's be together, let's love each other, let's be the best possible family, let's support each other. So each type of team really has a goal if you can think of how to define it. And I like to start there and say, well, what, mm-hmm. kind, of a, what kind of a team are you on? Yeah, because you need to know what the end is before you know, you know what you're sort of contribution to it it, it is so I, I guess I'm wondering is are there characteristics across the board that every team teammate or team member should have absolutely yes and we know what those are actually there's a lot of good research on what makes a good team member and and they're not going to be shocking to anybody but one of them is of course reliability that we would say that our favorite team players again this is, this could be at home or at work are going to be reliable if I say I'm going to do something I do it. I do it the way I say I'm going to do it. I do it within the time frame that I said I would do it. So reliability is is really one of those things that that every team member might want to try to work on. And then there's one that I add to it that is just mm-hmm. sort of mine, and it's a little bit of an offshoot from reliability, and it's predictability. I think that predictability in team members, I think pre- predictability, by the way, in all the people we encounter, is an important characteristic that is often overlooked or at least not hmm. spoken about. In other words, I want to believe that when I see you each and every day that you are going to be the same person. I'm sure you might know this in your life, but have you ever worked with somebody or maybe it's even someone in your family where one day they're saying, hey, how you doing, Lisa? The next day they're like, eh, and they're just grunting. And then yeah, you wonder which version of them you're going to get on that yeah, day. Yeah, that actually for me is very not only disorienting, but it's it's kind of dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. It feels like I want to believe that that person is the person they're representing themselves to be and that I can rely on them being that person each time I see them. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we can't each have a day where we're a little bit off or we're a little bit sad or we're kind of tired or we don't feel great. Or, of course. But I, that's not what I'm talking about. It's more people who seem to have wild variations in in how they behave when they're around us, which I just don't think is a good idea. So reliability, back to my little list here, being reliable but also being predictable, I think that makes you a better team player as well because then I know what I'm going to get every time I see you. Then, of course, from there come good communication skills. And when we think about good communication skills, of course I need the ability to tell you what I'm doing or how I intend to do it or to give you a progress report about where I am with the project. But listening, boy, oh, boy, listening is at least half, and I always say it's better than half, of any interaction with another person. So important to be a good listener. Absolutely. You know, I'm thinking of my head is spinning about all the applications in a family and at work, you know, can really cross over into the different areas of our lives. And and the question I think that on a lot of our minds is no matter what setting we find ourselves with, we know that people have different sort of work styles and work habits. So... How does that factor in when you're trying to work as a team? Great question. <laughs> so it kind of leads into another thing, which is the idea 
again, at work or at home, the idea of play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. Think of what what your skills are and think about the skills are of the people around you and and in either situation let's just take home because i know that all your listeners have a home and maybe not all of your listeners are at work or going to work right now but even in a home there's going to be somebody who's the cheerleader who's the one who's always encouraging there's going to be the person who's really good at making decisions and there's going to be the person who loves to divide and organize and and analyze and figure out you know what things need to be done and and so each person in a unit of people probably has some strengths and and also probably some weaknesses. (laughs) It's just how it works. And so the idea of making sure that when we do, I'll say, assign tasks, that we play to the strengths of the person. Now, it doesn't mean that that all of us, each of us, might not want to develop new strengths and good characteristics, but at least when we're first assembling our team, let's go back to a work situation. I have six new people I've inherited, and they're my team, and we're going to start out, and we're going to do a new project. Well, it's it's really not a bad thing to find out just through simple inquiry what what does each person really like doing what what mm. sort of settles into to the vibe of the room as people go in sit down grab a cup of coffee start talking you can if you're the leader you can start to figure out this person's quieter this person is more active this person likes to contribute this person likes to sit back and think and write and so it's a it's a good idea to look at what you got and then figure out Who's going to do what? Divide up, divide and conquer, as we might say. So we've been talking about the best case scenarios about how to be the best kind of teammate. Mm-hmm. And 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 Denise, you have so much experience as a professional trainer and a business consultant. You've seen this work in action. So now I want to sort of troubleshoot about those <laughs> uh, those. I think that the most common thing when you say teamwork, I always think of th- that situation where it's like, oh great, it's a group project at school. I'm going to end up doing. All of the work because I care too much or because I am a little OCD about it or whatever. And everybody else is going to, you know, just whatever or phone it in. What do we do when we have problems of it actually working? Oh, man. It's so funny you're saying that because I I, I do a lot of different work. I mean, you know, I do lots of stuff around the country, but uh, and I'm not just a keynoter or a professional speaker. I also work with so many students. And in particular, I'm out here in California in the same town where Cal Poly is, California Poly. Polytechnic University. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, a mentor and a counselor to a lot of these uh, young people out here who are, and also Cal Poly, by the way, has a motto of learn by doing. So everyone oh, man. who graduates has a senior project. I, this is just yeah, like, and it's you, your grade, and the stakes are high, and you, you don't have time to teach people how to be a good teammate. No, and so truly and quite literally, the question I get more than any other question when I'm working with students is, Denise, I'm on this team, and I'm the only one doing the work. I'm the only one. What am I going to do? And so it's like the most common question of, like, what do I do when everybody else is just messing around, and I'm the one who cares, and I want the good grades? So that's a hard question, and Mm -hmm. and the answer isn't anybody's favorite answer, but it is this, that, yeah, you can encourage, and you can cheerlead, and you can even chide. You can even say, just a minute, everyone. We'd better get this together. You can do whatever you want. But when it comes down to it, if you don't have control, now if you were the, if you were literally the boss or the supervisor, then you could do some things that were very serious, like I'm going to simply write you up if you're not doing your team project. But it, in school or if it's at home and somebody's not really cleaning their room or mm-hmm. we're back to the school project example of yours, when it comes down to it, sometimes you actually have to just be the one who says, that's it, I want a good grade. I'm going to have to carry this, and they're all going to ride on my back, and it's not going to be fair, and blah, 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 but I'm going to have to do it anyway. Now, short of that answer, which no one likes, right. but I do have to share it, <laughs> short of that, because it's sort of reality, but short of that answer, yes, there's nothing wrong with sitting down with a group of people and saying, you know what, you guys, here's what's happening. I'm carrying the load here. I'm doing all the work. Every single thing that we're producing is coming out of my laptop so I can prove it. And we really need to share this project because that's what's fair. And what's going to happen is that people are going to say, yeah, I know, and I'm really sorry, and I'll do better, and all those things, but they <laughs> might not. I've been so busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'm so busy, and I, and I have all these other issues, and my, oh, my gosh, my Internet isn't, isn't strong enough, and you'll get every excuse in the world. And so sometimes you just have to carry the project. But 
But asking for cooperation mm. is there's nothing wrong with it, and also actually you know saying that look people I you know I really need this kind of help because I can't carry the whole load. Would you be willing to please help me? Sometimes moving from I don't like this, I want you to to share the load. Moving from that to requesting help. Mm. A lot of times there's again there's a lot of research on all this. I wish we had all day to talk, but a lot of oh, research says that. But if I walk up to you and I and I actually say, would you be willing to please help me? That there is a little bit of a trigger because we're human beings and we have compassion and we and we're playing to that compassionate part. There's a there's a lot of research that says when I truly ask for help, make direct eye contact, do all the things that allow you to, I guess I'll say, enter my world psychologically, mm. that you're more apt to agree to assist me. So truly stopping what's going on and saying, I really, really need help, everybody, might be a better approach and might draw a better answer from people. Well, and I love that you are really echoing what you said at the beginning of our conversation, that communication being, having those good communication skills is only going to make you a better teammate. And so you're really modeling that. Yeah. And I'm, you know, my mind is spinning of all the applications as a parent, you know, please help me. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Instead of just, you you know, keeping it inside, being a martyr, just saying, I have to do everything, you know, communicating and doing that and and knowing that, that you can be counted on um, will make it more likely, I think, to, yes, for it to happen it's in the future. A, you know, there's, I wish, oh gosh, I wish we could talk. There's a whole bunch of stuff about like how when, when, when we communicate with people, how we might be able to stop people from interrupting us. And it, it, because that's just a habit that people have sometimes, which can be very, very frustrating. And the whole thing about interruptions is that, yes, I could go through the whole thing with you right now, but I won't. It's, it's not, not our topic. But, but there are all kinds of ways to ask people to stop interrupting us. But the best one, which is the ultimate one, is to actually stop and ask and ask and say, are you willing, would you be willing to wait before you speak until I've finished what I'm trying to tell you. And a lot of times that's the one that works the best because, again, we've played to the compassionate part of the other person that, oh, my gosh, I'm really bugging Lisa every time I interrupt her. I don't mean to do that. And so we get down to the heart of how we could ask someone for assistance or to help us out. And true with our kids, too, absolutely true. And we have small kids at home, and my boys are now in their 20s. But, yes, Mm -hmm. when they were little bitty kids, the best way that I could interact with them after they had torn everything up 15 (laughs) times was to say, could you please help me? I, I, when I walk into the room and I find this, it's so difficult for me on my day off to have to clean all this up. And then they're like, yeah, mommy, of course. And so wow. it does work. Yeah. It does work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to switch topics just a little bit to make sure, sure that we have time to talk about this because mm-hmm. many places have gone remote. And so team dynamics are, are just super unique at this moment. And I'm wondering what your perception is about not only how remote working has changed that team dynamic, but, but how we can use use what the situation is right now to our advantage? Wonderful questions. Thank you for those. Uh, so, yes, of course, team, team dynamics for all of us, I'm sure for you, too, at the Lisa Show and for me with all the people I oh, work yeah. with. I have a lot of clients. We're all, <laughs> we're all Zooming or we're FaceTiming <laughs> or we're just on the good old-fashioned telephone. And so there's very little face-to-face contact with people, and, and we can't have it. And I'm a huge believer in social distancing and mask wearing, and I hope that all of your listeners are as well. And so I believe we're doing what we need to do in order to slow this down and bring ourselves back to normalcy. So, And I don't think it's going to be over really soon. So in terms of how we're interacting with one another at mm-hmm. work, and even in you know extended family situations where you can't have Thanksgiving with all your family members any longer and such. So, so yes, this is changing things. I am, as a psychologist, which is my background, a little worried in that I think that that being isolated is not good for us. We're we are we're mammals. <laughs> That's what we are. We're humans. We're very cool mammals because we can <laughs> talk and we have opposable thumbs. And oh, aren't we lucky? And we build cities. And we, we're pretty great. Yeah, we're great. <laughs> we're great mammals, aren't we? We're just great. So uh, anyway, but so we're mammals, and we know that we're social. That's we just know yeah. that about human beings. We're not. Mm-hmm. We're not like felines who like to hunt alone. We're, so we're we're social mammals and. So this whole thing of being isolated and working alone and being alone, I don't think is good for our, our psyches or our souls or whatever you want to call our essences. Uh, and I do worry a little bit about a few things. One of the things I worry about is that if you, if, if someone were a little bit prone toward 
liking being isolated. Like if you if you were a little bit withdrawn, let's just say you're introverted or sure. you're just not really great with working with groups and you'd really rather work alone. And on all those social assessment tools that people give you when you join a company, if it was showing this person prefers to work alone, this person doesn't like groups. Well, if you were a little bit moving toward that anyway, this might not be good for you because all the social skills that you were forced to learn because you went to school and because you worked in a company and because you really did have teammates, all those things after a while can kind of evaporate and then you can become more hermit-like. And I think that anyone who was sort of on that scale anyway is going to have trouble reintegrating. I I think that's an issue that we need to think about when we reintegrate our teams. Anyone who wasn't overly oriented toward teamwork anyway may have a lot of trouble reintegrating. And then those of us who are actually team players and are social and like being social, well, we're just kind of miserable. We're not having a lot of fun right now. It's It's not like we're liking it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this is hard. I want to be with people. And so that's not really very good for us either because we're every day up against something that doesn't look very inviting. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the same position. I get up in the morning and I walk into my office, which is downstairs from my bedroom, well, <laughs> you know, and there's no one in it but my cat. And so it's, it's a little bit like, wow, I, you know, I don't get to say hi to people and have a cup of coffee with them. And so nobody's really too happy right now about it. And the ones who are happy probably needed to be socialized and they're not being socialized. So this, I'm sorry for such a long answer, but the answer no, is that a complicated that we, question, though. Yeah. yeah, well, it is complicated because each of us is experiencing what we see in our own little individual worlds differently. And some of us are saying, this is horrible, get me back. And some of us are saying, this isn't so bad, I hope it lasts forever. So I, I think that we have to start by saying each person, when, once we do reintegrate, will have had a very, very different experience. And we might need a very, very different reintegration experience in order to come back into the team fully. I also do think, because I am working with a lot of organizations out here in California, Silicon Valley area stuff, that it's maybe never going to go back the way it did. And uh, th- and what I see right now, because I work with a lot of people, mm-hmm. is that that the older population of workers, we'll say people 50 and above, are saying, I can't wait to get back to this. I can't wait till we're all in a room together. I can't wait until, you know, I walk in in the morning and everybody's at their cubicles and we're all... <laughs> and, but when I talk to people who are maybe in between 25 and 35, they're saying, wow, I've just figured out how I can work remotely. Uh, I just, you know, I've just figured out how I can do my work every day, but actually be at the beach. So... Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, and of course, we know that the 25 to 35 year olds are going to be running the country very soon because the 50 year olds will be retiring. So I think that we may, through this COVID situation, have seen a shift in how the future of the work site will look. And I don't know that it will ever go back. I think we might actually be seeing a lot more remote working and a lot more Zoom conferencing. And so having these conversations about working together in groups and how to adapt and how to change are going to be more important than ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really the the look of the new world. I just, I don't know what it looks like yet, but I think that there will actually be less let's all come into a room and sit together. Mm -hmm. And not because of COVID, but just because we figured out we could do it by not doing that. And, of course, we also know there are some things that have happened. People... There are lots and lots of reports, if we read about this, that people have been better able than ever to balance between work and personal life. Uh, They're feeling like their work-life balance is better than ever because Mm -hmm. they're able to take off and see their kids or have lunch with their sweetheart who's in the other room working. So uh, So people are liking that part, and we're also seeing, as we know, that the that the air is cleaner that the, that that we're you know we're put, pumping less gas into our cars that there are all kinds of things that have happened that have been advantageous that again may skew the new world toward less face to face contact in work sites so uh, I don't really know what it looks like yet but it is very interesting I'm not afraid of it I I think it will turn out it'll settle into whatever it is and we will all be happy because it will be our new reality. But I do wonder whether we really will ever be together in one big office together. So interesting to discuss. We'll have to have you come back on uh, as we, you know, 
see what really unfolds and how we can best pivot and adapt. Oh, I would love to. I, I just, I love visiting with you. Your questions are great and you're so positive. Oh, you're so nice. Thanks. Well, I love this your is... show. I do. I really do love your show. Thank so. you. And thank you so much for joining us, Denise. We really oh, appreciate pleasure. it. Den- Denise Dudley's a professional trainer, business consultant, and author of Work It, a book for young professionals to take charge of their careers and find meaningful employment. And for more of her tips or her book, uh, you can visit her website at denisemdudley.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Now, during the Second World War, women worked hard to support the war effort, whether they were at home or in uniform overseas. Some even served on the front lines as nurses, pilots, technicians, and more. And at the time, President Eisenhower said the contribution of the women of America, whether on the farm or in the factory or in uniform, to D-Day was a sine qua non on the invasion effort. But what about the women working behind the scenes? What secret roles did they play to guarantee America's success in the war? Well, because it's Women's History Month and because this story is absolutely fascinating, we've invited Larry Loftus, author of The Princess Spy, to discuss his best-selling book and the true story of Elaine Griffiths, a model turned World War II spy. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is such an interesting story, and for those who are not uh, familiar, tell us a little bit about who Elaine Griffiths is and and before she became a spy for the United States. Sure. She was uh, a small town girl from uh, Pearl River, New York, which is just outside of Manhattan. Normal person, normal life, kind of a Rockwell town. And she wanted to do something for the war. She graduated from college and wanted to do something for the war effort. Her brothers had joined the war and she couldn't really find anything. I mean, she's 22 years old. What is she going to do? Um, so she takes a job in Manhattan as a model. She's beautiful. She's 5'9", beautiful, and takes a job at Hattie Carnegie, which is actually where Lucille Ball has started. And one night she goes to a dinner party. She has a blind date, and little does she know that the blind date that she's been fixed up with happens to be an OSF spy master. And one thing leads to another over discussion, and she says, yeah, I want to get into the war. He says, yeah, you don't want to be a famous model. No, no, my brother's in the war. I want to get in the war. I want to help. But, you know, what can I do? Um, And he says, he he just basically interviews her there on the spot and says, well, do you speak any foreign languages? Yeah, I'm fluent in Spanish, and I've got a little bit of French. And uh, so anyway, one thing leads to another over dinner. And he says, well, look, if you get a call by a guy named Mr. Tomlinson, he might be able to help you find something to do in the war effort. And that was all she knew. So she leaves. Well, two weeks later, this Tomlinson guy calls after the FBI checks out the family and their background, of course. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Tomlinson uh, is very mysterious. And he says, meet me at uh, the Biltmore Hotel tomorrow at 6 o'clock. She does. So he continues the grooming, asking questions. Well, they send her to the farm which is the OSS's uh, 100-acre complex outside of D.C. to train these people. The OSS was our predecessor to the CIA. And so she goes to this place. She has a three-week program, and she still doesn't know she's going to be a spy yet until she's she's into the program. And so she learns how to shoot all the guns. She learns how to shoot rifles. She learns how to shoot machine guns, including a Tommy gun. Hmm. She learns how to fight with a knife. She learns how to make a knife out of a newspaper. She becomes essentially what we think of as, as as a female version of James Bond. That's what she becomes. Wow. And so they train her for three weeks at the farm. She's lethal. In fact, she was trained by the same man, William Fairbairn, who had trained Dusko Popov, the subject of my first book, Into the Lion's Mouth, who was Fleming's inspiration for James Bond. Uh, she's trained by the same man uh, to, to, to fight with a knife and to, oh. to kill people, to take people out. Uh, Fairbairn's kind of a legend in, in that he was the father of close combat and created this famous fighting knife called the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife that she would have trained with. So she, sent, she they send her off to Spain. Spain's neutral in the war. Mm-hmm. So in Madrid, it's the hub, basically the hub of espionage during World War II. So they send her off to be a spy. And and so I've um, got to think that when she's sent off to Spain, at that point, she finally realizes what she's been <laughs> trained for. Oh, yeah. I mean, when she's at the farm, they they basically say, OK, by the way, you may wonder why you're here. Well, we're this is the first spy agency in America. We're training you to be a spy. 
which is the first time she hears it. I mean, at that up till then, she doesn't know. And so because her assignment is to work in Madrid um, and, and Spain is neutral at this point, what is her mission? She's got uh, actually two. Her, she has an initial mission and then she acquires one later. The first mission, why she's sent, is to be a coder. She's going to work in the Madrid office. She's got a cover. Her cover is to be a secretary with the American Oil Commission, which was a real agency, a real entity that monitored our, our sales of um, oil to Spain to make sure they didn't end up on a German submarine. Uh, so that's her cover. And, and her day job, she works in the Madrid OSS office to um, code and decode ingoing and outgoing messages, like uh, someone in the French resistance might cable Madrid and say, look, I just saw a whole division of panzers at this location. Well, day or night, I mean, this would be three o'clock in the morning, she's on call. She and another man, Robert Dunev, her partner in the coding office, and they'd be called into the office to, hey, decode this, and so she would decode it. And then the information has to go back out because we we want to send bombers, you know, to that that location of, of where the uh, panzers are or whatever's happening. Could be ship movements, could be anything. So she's on call um, day and night. So that's her sort of day job is to be a coder. And then after she does that for about a year, they realize she's very talented. Uh, she's very sophisticated. She's charming. She's beautiful. They realize, hey, we can send her out as a field agent. I mean, what we think of as a, as a James Bond spy. Mm-hmm. So they do. They send her out as a field agent. She goes out at night. She goes out on weekends. She goes to bullfights. She goes to flamenco parties. She goes to cocktail parties and receptions and banquets and you know events at these uh, famous uh, or these these large fincas, which is a like a an estate, a, like a country estate. And and she's there to get information. She she needs to find out. Who are the Nazi uh, collaborators? Who, uh, what can we find out about the actual Nazis that we know of? Uh, people like Hans Lazar, who was the German press attaché in Madrid, uh, that had all these informants working for him. So she's there. She's sent out nights and weekends to to, to find information about people uh, and about things going on that the Germans are doing. And then later, she gets a big project called Safe Haven, where they're going to track, and she's got to help find. Uh, the, the the loot that the Germans had stolen in, in France and Belgium and other places that's being shipped through Spain to Argentina, as well as war criminals that are trying to get out of Dodge. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's all basically to, to, to capture them before they can make it out to Argentina. We're talking about Elaine Griffiths, who is a model-turned-World War II spy in this stranger-than-fiction, yeah. uh, r- you know, real-life experience. And we're visiting with Larry Loftus. You've written this book. You know, uh, you hear the comparison that you've made a, a few times of uh, Elaine uh, and uh, James Bond. And within every classic James Bond... James Bond falls in love with, you know, these these people, and, and they're oftentimes the people that would double-cross him or anything like that. Were there the stories of this beautiful model-turned-spy in Spain and, and the people that she would interact with? Absolutely. In fact, I mean, she's going to—she kind of stands out. I mean, she's five foot nine, young and beautiful, so she stands out in, in Spain— and there's basically four four men that, that are smitten by her. So while all the espionage is, is, is going along that we can kind of track underneath that, you have a, a, several romance stories which are following at the same time. So four men uh, basically fall in love with her. The first is a, a famous bullfighter named Juanito Belmonte. Well, we wouldn't know that name, but just imagine that your, your daughter uh, is some guy named Tom Brady falls mm. in love with, yeah. you know? I mean, everybody knows. And so he's a big celebrity, and she's not really interested in him, but she knows he can open any door. He's famous. He's a celebrity. He's got an entourage of people, people wanting autographs, chasing him around. So she basically becomes his friend and goes out with him. They go to bull, She goes to his bullfights. They go to dinner. Um, he introduces her to people. So he falls in love with her, and he's sending her flowers and chocolates all the time. So that's the first one. Then there's another man that falls in love with her, another OSS agent, a very mysterious character named Pierre, who we later turn out might not be all that he's supposed to be. Uh, I won't spoil it, but there's something going on with him which is very mysterious. So he shows up in Madrid, even though Spain is not his area of assignment. He falls in love with her. Then there's a third man that is very smitten by her, 
His name is Barnaby Conrad. He was America's youngest vice consul. He went to uh, he was stationed in in, in uh, Malaga. Well, she's arrested. She's thrown in jail in Malaga. She had been sent out on assignment to deliver some secret documents, but she was traveling without a special permit. You had to have this permit to travel with. Mm. And she didn't have one. So she's arrested, thrown in jail, and can only be sort of bailed out by an American diplomat, and he's the only guy in the area, and he's young, so he falls, you know, he falls for as well. <laughs> but he bails her, he bails her out of jail, and then says, "Hey, look! Now that we have we have a beautiful day, let's go out in my car and let's go to lunch, and let's go see the town." So he's number three, and then the one that she falls for, number four, is Luis Figueroa. That's the name that she knows him by. What she doesn't know is he's the Count of Quintanilla, one of the wealthiest men in Spain from the most the most well-known family in Spain. Uh, and he he becomes the Count of Romanones. Well, his grandfather was the most famous person in, fame, in, in Spain uh, after probably, uh, Franco, I guess. But his grandfather had the prime, been the prime minister of Spain three times and, wow. and was uh, King Alfonso's principal advisor. Very famous family. So Eileen knows nothing of this. She just knows this is a nice guy with <laughs> green eyes that's handsome, that's charming, and I really like him. That's all she knows. So that love story really develops. And, of course, he knows nothing about her being a spy, and she knows nothing about him being this wealthy count. And so how how does it reveal itself? Are you asking for spoilers, no, Lisa? I, I mean, just a little bit. I just want to know when her husband figures out that she's a spy. Well, the, the, the subtitle of the book kind of gives it away. Yeah. The, the subtitle is The True Story of World War II Spy, Elaine Griffith, the Countess of Romano. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she falls in love with him, and they decide to get married. And, and, and it all culminates. You have this sort of frenzy of activity where she's still doing the espionage for the OSS, she falls in love with him, and then President Truman comes in and says, look, we don't need foreign intelligence anymore. The war's over. war in Europe's over, so let's close the OSS, and they're supposed to leave. Um, he closes it on August 15, and, and everybody's supposed to go home. And so she asks for permission to stay. She had acquired some vacation time because she wants to stay with Luis. Mm-hmm. And so she does, um, but then her spy master, the man that she had gone to this blind date with, his name's Frank Ryan, um, he says, look, we've got something else for you. Well, little do we know, the, the intelligence people at the time said, look, we can't do without foreign intelligence, notwithstanding what President Truman said. So the heads of intelligence, uh, William Donovan for the OSS, uh, William Stevenson, head of uh, the British Security Coordination, which was MI6 in America and Canada, and then a guy by the name of Charles Hambro, who was head of SOE, in Britain, they all formed an entity in Panama. <laughs> mm. And as a former lawyer, I can tell you the only reason you incorporate in Panama is to hide it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they incorporate in Panama, and they set up where the headquarters is in New York City. Well, who do they tap to run it? Frank Ryan, this this man that had you know tapped Aileen from day one. So he's to run it. And of course, the first person or one of the first people he recruits is Aileen. Because he wants to have – and by the way, it, it does have every good spy agency has a cover, and it has a cover, which is this import-export, and they're going to help foster trade in World War II, which is very much needed. They really did do that. But why was everyone in the whole company a former spy or, or associated yeah. with the spy agency? So they tap every – and no one had any experience in trade. None of these people did. So Aileen's tapped to start the Madrid office, and then they Frank Ryan sends her to um, Paris, and then from Paris he's about to send her, send her to Zurich. And after you know she's doing this for about a year and a half, and finally she says, Frank, I love my job, I love you, but I'm in love with this man named Luis Cigarro, and we want to get married, and and I'm going to move back to Spain. So then she has to make a decision: Do I continue to be a spy in this great job? And she loved her job. Uh, but she also wanted to be married, you know. So she's got the, the the Count of Quintanilla waiting over here, saying, "Look, let's get married." And so they do. But she continues on uh, with that agency, and then she ends up doing some odd jobs for the CIA um, after that, which is also very mysterious. But she, uh, she she burns the candle at both ends, shall we say? Yeah, and it's such an interesting story. We don't have a ton of time left, but I am curious as to. Uh, her impact on on the war. What do you think her legacy is? Well, without giving spies, too much away, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all, all spies have somewhat mundane jobs. I mean, they work behind the scenes, and they 
there. I mean, the, the only spy that, that really changed the war would have been Popoff because he warned of, of D-Day. I mean, he warned of Pearl Harbor, and he was the guy that the deceived the, the Nazis uh, for D-Day. But most spies, you know, work under the cover, and they do just, they do their little part. Mm-hmm. Well, Spain, as we talked about, was neutral, but it had a very vital role in that it was sending information back and forth around the world on this uh, of, of what's going on. Uh, in, in all these various places where we need to send troops, we need to send bombers, we need to send men, soldiers, et cetera. So uh, she does that. And then that what I mentioned earlier, the safe haven project to track and find. And they do. I mean, they find money being laundered by the Germans going from Madrid to Lisbon. Uh, you have you've got secret bank accounts in, in Switzerland that are funneling Nazi money out to go to to go to uh, Argentina. You've got war criminals. And she's she, she submitted 59 uh, field reports, which is more than any other agent in Madrid, Madrid, probably more than all the agents combined. And she'll say things like, this person, I believe, was a Gestapo person. This person's a Nazi war criminal, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a murder involved in the story. She uncovers the murder at the very end. She and her partner that she went out with at night. So there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Larry, wow. Larry when does this movie come out? Yes, yeah, I mean, you, we've got the book, <laughs> The Princess Spy. But is, is this something that uh, ha- has been uh, touched on with you to to try and develop into a movie? This sounds fascinating. I, I, I'm I'm hoping to hear this afternoon. Oh, oh wow! You heard wow. it here first. We, there there are three groups that that are, uh, that have expressed interest. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, read read or are reading the book. One group's further along than the other group than the other two groups but it's a wonderful group we've already thought about the person who we'd like to have be a lean um gal gadot if if all the stars align would oh, be yeah. yeah that would be amazing choice. Mm-hmm. and that was the first name they mentioned so and she's tall too she was in, in a former model so yeah she would be perfect well let me know so, how we invest uh, larry because i'm interested <laughs> i'm very interested in this project you, you you and me both you and me both i mean Absolutely. it is worth noting you have 63 pages of end notes i mean that is extensive research you have really you know dived deep into to the story it's fascinating Thank you. It's been a fun, fun book to write. The name of the book is The Princess Spy, the true story of World War II spy Aline Griffith, Countess of Romanonis. The book is available wherever you buy your books, or you can find more information about Larry Loftus at LarryLoftus.com. Larry, thanks for being with us. You're listening to The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. We often hear about the importance of building a strong foundation, and this principle applies to everything, our homes, our habits, and most importantly, in our relationships. A good relationship is the kind that will stand the test of time. It's built on trust, and it's built on love. Also, it's built on mutual respect. But what else makes a solid foundation for our relationships to share their secrets of stability? We've asked back into the Lisa show, Danielle and Howard Taylor from Marriage on Deck. They are the marriage coaches and authors of the book, The Fundamentals of Marriage. Welcome back, Danielle and Howard. Good morning. Thank you for having us. All right, uh, Danielle, to you, I would like you to define for me stability as we talk about it in a relationship. What is it? Stability in a relationship has two arms. The first one is the spiritual arm. If you're a spiritual spiritual person or religious person, stability is connecting with your um, uh, religious hierarchy, committing to them, praying, fasting, reading the word, like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. That's the foundation for us if you're a religious person, right? If you're a non-religious person, person and in addition to religious, basically stability is just getting on the same page, having a foundation. Um, a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So if we de- develop values and declarations and mission statements and affirmations, things that uh, basically matter most to us and come into agreement with those things and then committing to them, that I think will help couples establish the foundation for stability in their relationship. So how, uh, yeah, Howard, as we're establishing that foundation, uh, what does that look like? We, we, you're coaching a, a couple that wants to build that foundation. Maybe there's no issues within it. How do you recommend that they, they voice or put into place that foundation? Yeah. So for, for Danielle and I, I'll share, uh, and what, what we coach couples on is we, we kind of take couples through practical steps. Um, and so that developing out your foundation, we, we would call it, 
is coming up with things that I would say are core values. So um, core values are incredible to making sure you have something that's a guideline or a benchmark for your relationship. For Danielle and I, it was called the Ten Commandments of Our Marriage. And so we listed out these core values or these things that were very important to us that acted as an accountability partner outside of just the she or I. So, okay, it's written down that we have the Ten Commandments of Our Marriage. Because we've written that down, which we ought to do, don't just talk about it, document it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now when uh, Danielle or I breach one of those core values or commandments, we use that as the, as, as, as the judge and jury, right? Okay. Not what a Howard thinks now in this current season. It's also important to have models and mission statements or impact statements documented somewhere because these things are great reminders to you as you go through your day. We know marriage presents, presents many, many things that act as distractions, maybe to uh, what our core values are, um, whether it is something we're excited about, maybe that maybe it makes me want to quit my job, but a core value for us is, uh, is financial stability, and so I can't just come home and tell my wife I quit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these, these things help your marriage not um, fall, fall or falter, as Dana said, I'll divide against stuff, can't stand um, and so also we, one of the visual things we do is we take couples through uh, a quick visual exercise. And we say, think about the strong marriages or the power couples that you revere or reverence. Just, you know, visualize that couple. In marriages, we always have these couples that we think, oh, maybe it's our mother or father that have been married for 35 years or somebody in our church or somebody in our community. Well, we call those skyscraper marriages, right? Mm. And so whenever you see a skyscraper marriage, it's tall, it looks great, they look happy, they've been married a long time. When when we we when we remind couples is that the foundation of a skyscraper is oftentimes deeper or just as deep as as what you see above ground, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in order for that couple have to have gotten to the point of being a skyscraper marriage, they had to dig a deep, solid foundation based off of core values, principles, disciplines, and practices, and then continue to have staying power or consistency with that foundation. And so uh, that's, that's one of the visual exercises that we take couples through in addition to documenting core values and boundaries. You know, as you're talking, uh, there's an old Sunday school song that comes to my mind. I'm not sure if in your faith tradition that you know it, but the song essentially goes, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? Uh, It's one that the younger kids would sing, and the house on the sand washed away, right? And, and, And the principal obviously is building on a sure foundation. Danielle, what are those those principles or foundations of sand that we fall ourselves trapping into? I think we find ourselves being trapped into not being uh, prioritizing each other, not being focused on what the mission and value is, not respecting each other, not valuing the time that we have, not appreciating who we are um, as individuals and what we bring and contribute to them to the marriage. I mean, I, I probably could go on and on, but some of those things I think is is some of those things cause us to have a not to not have a firm foundation. Mm-hmm. And so when we start missing the Absolutely. mark, you know, not being testy and temperamental and um, not not adhering to the to the goals and the commandments and the vision, like all of those things, I I feel like contribute to having a sand sand under your relationship. Now we're vi- relationship. We're visiting with Danielle and Howard Taylor. They are um, marriage coaches, authors of the book, The Fundamentals of Marriage. You guys work with uh, couples. And and I would suppose that the conversation would go something like this. Hey, would you guys like to have a stable marriage? Would you like to have stability in your marriage? I can't imagine that anyone would be like, nah, not interested. <laughs> B- but I do imagine that they... When, when people work with coaches, it is oftentimes because they have found themselves in, in some element of a shaky foundation. So, Howard, what, what are, are the things that you've learned in the time that you've done this? What are some secrets or some helps, some hacks that you can offer in our time with you guys today? Yeah, sure, sure. <clears throat> one, one, of the thing, one hack is just that you mentioned, you mentioned it there. Um, we believe that there's safety in the multitude of counselors, and so... Um, it, it, we think that there's some level of dangers in having an isolated marriage where there's not somebody, whether it's a coach or a marriage mentor, that's been where you're going uh, and that could help you navigate that space. And so 
um, we encourage all to align themselves with a spiritual marriage coach or a mentor. And the, these individuals, it's important to note, shouldn't just be in your life when you have problems, right? Similar to the sports arena where even though you may be the greatest basketball player, baseball player, or, 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 or football player, there's still a coach that helps bring that out of you. And so <clears throat> very important for marriages, especially those that are new, uh, to tap into a, a mentor or coach. Um, in addition to that, it is all it is always important. You know, and I call it relationship performance evaluation. As you build on stability, you've maybe documented those boundaries that we talked about earlier. How often do you revisit that? And so, in the workplace, if you're going to be a stable employee, if you're right, and you have a boss that really cares about your growth and success plan. They sit you down on a periodic basis, whether it's semi-annually or annually, and they go over how you're performing to those boundaries or for day on our Ten Commandments. And so it's very important for couples to document that. Put that on, put that on schedule. Mm-hmm. And by putting that on schedule, what it will allow your couple to, your, your spouse or your partner to become is your accountability partner. And it, it also, because uh, I would say a pitfall to firm foundation, it's when you get in the cycle or habit of always pointing out weaknesses mm-hmm. and always nitpicking and all it, 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 that what that does is it sometimes puts cracks in your foundation. Whereas if you have a definitive time to talk about constructive criticism because it's on calendar, first and foremost, the, the, the spouse or partner expects to get some, uh, just like I would in the workplace, I expect to get some constructive criticism. Hmm. But also it allows for you to meet that constructive criticism with even more praise. We know that a good a good accountability partner or boss or coach, though they're going to give you constructive criticism, they match and balance out that diet equally with praise. And so two things, have a mentor for your marriage as a hack always, and don't just think that it's when you're struggling – and have relationship performance evaluation hmm. as a unique opportunity to grow your marriage and, and, and keep a firm foundation. One one thing that comes to mind as we're talking, and I love the the visualization of a foundation. Uh, where I live is in a particular neighborhood where there's a tremendous amount of gentrification, or people are tearing down homes and and rebuilding homes, and and so mm-hmm. I wonder. In the cases of things like infidelity or financial infidelity or those things, that's almost like completely, you know, taking out that home. If our relationships are those home, I'm air quoting that. Uh, Is it is it possible then to to build a home of the same or even better quality in the place where that one once foundation stood, Danielle? Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you identify what the issues are and kind of isolated, you can focus on rebuilding from the ground up. Howard always talks about a good um, example of a home remodel. You tear it all down, you build down, you tear down the walls, you do all of this stuff, and then you go back and graph out, what do I want this home to look like, the home of our marriage? Well, what do we want the upgrades to be? What do we want the, you know, the interior to look like, the exterior to look like? How do we want to rebuild this to become something that we love and are proud of? And so just because you hit a bump in the road doesn't mean it's like, oh, let's just tear the house down and be done. Of course, take the time to build it back up and then look at where the holes were. How did we get to that point to begin with last time so that we can be prepared to fight better against it this time to to ward off um, any type of attacks from the relationship from whatever area they may be to make the foundation secure and strong and stable. So absolutely, you can rebuild it back up to make it exactly the marriage that you need to be. Nobody ha- that you want it to be. No one has a, a perfect marriage per se, but you can, no, well, right. not per se. Nobody has a perfect marriage, mm-hmm. but you can create a marriage that you are happy with. And that's ultimately what matters most. I want to take this example of the home, the being rebuilt, the being renovated, uh, one step further to to just sort of ask around this. Several of us, what we know about relationships is what we gained uh, by observing them in our home of origin. Uh, so I liken that to maybe we've moved into a home and there's a wall that doesn't make sense that's in the middle of our family room. How how do how do we deal with those as we're talking about this stability and this closeness in a relationship? That's, that, that's awesome. I love that example because when we coach couples, we literally tell them there's a, there's a segment. After we, tell, we first have couples define what they want their remodeled marriage or home to look like, right, You using that same example. But then it's very critical when you watch HGTV or all these remodel shows, 
<laughs> to open up your marriage by tearing down walls. And so we talk about that teardown process with couples. And we have these couples mutually list out walls that they feel like need to and have to come down in the relationship. Now, the, be- the-, the beauty of uh, what we call demolition-, demolition in the marriage is though it's loud and it's boisterous and it may cause us to have to change habits in our relationship, for the most part, it's relatively quick. But you have to be agreed to tear them down. And so we have couples list out these walls that have to come down, and then we assist them in tearing that down with what that looks like. So if, uh, if, if there was uh, pornography in a relationship, right, mm-hmm. if you're going to tear down the wall of pornography in a relationship, that means that you have to retrofit and put beams and, and do things to make sure that the house is still stable with that wall being out of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's being mindful of cell phone usage. Maybe it's being mindful of, of, of that addiction and seeking additional help, right? It's important to anchor on something else. And so, uh, because if, if, if not, other thing, other walls may erect themselves. And yeah. so uh, I love the wall example because it's important to tear down walls, but it's also important to anchor your marriage or, or, or your house, your, the home of your marriage, on some other things. And that comes through the design, the design process. What is our marriage mm-hmm. going to look like? now that we've torn these walls out. Danielle, Mm -hmm. without breaching the confidence that you've had with people that you've worked with, I'm wondering if you could share an example where you were able to help sort of shore up a wall of a relationship. Yeah, for sure. Um, We talked to a couple, we talked to a couple one time where one party came in with a, a single mindset and another party came in, the other spouse, I should say, came into the marriage with like a hero mindset. So there were some issues that had built up over time where it caused them to have a couple of cracks in their foundation from not being able to communicate, from not being able to understand each other, from one person spoiling the other one and then getting resentful over it Mm. later on Mm -hmm. to how they projected Mm -hmm. themselves on social media, just a a lot, a host of different things. So how, like Howard mentioned, we, we help them to tear those down by asking what do you, what is the problem, number one? What's the problem? Because a side note from all of that is that sometimes we have small things here and there, but we want to tear down the whole entire house. It's like just because you don't like the paint on the wall doesn't mean you tear down the whole house and run out, you know? <laughs> so so exactly. maybe let's just start there. We can repaint this wall. There's hope, you know? So um, so that was the thing, too, just really isolating it, to getting to the heart of what the actual issues were. Sometimes the, the small things turn into big things, and then it just confuses everybody. So helping them realize what that is, talking about what they want it to look like, and then coming up with a plan on how they can do that. What is the frequency that is going to be done? Who's going to hold you accountable? Are we able to get in there and hold you accountable? When we ask you, we expect an answer regarding how you're working towards these things. Like, there's no point in counseling and coaching couples if there's no accountability and commitment and follow through with that. Danielle and Howard Taylor, certified marriage coaches, founders of Marriage on Deck, which you can find on social media. You can also find their new book, The Fundamentals of Marriage, on their website, marriageondeck.com. This is conversation number two in a series that we'll do all year long as we go through each of the chapters in their book to be able to help build a stronger and more lasting relationship. Thanks, you guys, for being with us. Thank Thank you you for having us. You're listening to The Lisa Show. 